You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 163, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is really great. It's Chris Deacon, who managed within the New Jersey state government to save billions of dollars within their health and benefits plan. She actually reformed government from the inside. This is something that I oftentimes think is not possible, but she proves me wrong. So we're going to talk about what she did, how she did it, the roadblocks she faced, and how that translates into maybe the broader healthcare discussion and as far as funding goes for the rest of the country. That means not just state governments, but we're talking about federal and potentially large businesses and even small businesses and how they can transform their healthcare and save money. And maybe if you're someone who's interested in getting involved in government actual reformia to make it work better for the people, perhaps today's conversation will provide that spark and inspiration that you need. Show notes can be found, as always, at theparadox.com slash 163. Finally, I'd encourage you, if you've not yet subscribed to the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player, whatever you're listening to it now, and also leave a written review. Those are greatly appreciated, as is the fact that you continue to share the show with your friends and recommend it to your colleagues and family members, and it's, again, greatly appreciated. But without further ado, how I reformed state government and saved billions of dollars with Chris Deacon. Enjoy. Welcome. I'm here with my new friend, Kristen Deacon. Chris Deacon is... Uh, at 4C Health Solutions, but she formerly was the Deputy Attorney General of New Jersey and then served as Special Counsel to the Governor in the Christie administration. She then moved on to a role as Assistant Director of the Division of Pension and Benefits, and that, which is actually kind of a lousy tease, we're going to talk about pensions and benefits here, which I'm sure people are on the edge of their seat, but it's actually a really great story. So Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, I I tend to be very libertarian, and so it's very easy for me to be cynical about government and how government is hopeless and it's a money pit. And you know, you send you send a dollar taxes, you'll be thankful if you get ten cents worth of value back from the government. So that's sort of my approach in looking at these things, and and that no one is in government is working to improve that situation. You know, everyone's got their interest in perpetuating the, the current system, and they've got their right. players, you know, supporters. So why don't you tell us your story? Because I think it's really fascinating before sure. me, before I set up too much and explain away. I, I want you to tell me what you did in pensions and benefits in New Jersey, because I think it's a really great story. Yeah, great. I'll start by saying I didn't really grow up in, in healthcare. I'm a lawyer by training, as you, you mentioned, and I was actually a bankruptcy attorney who practiced in Delaware, PA and New Jersey for several years before finding myself in public service. Um, like you said, first as a deputy attorney general, and then um, in the governor's office. And that was really my first foray into the healthcare world um, as I oversaw uh, Department of Banking and Insurance um, and also dealt with some of the hospitals um, in the state. Um, when I went to the treasurer's office at Division of Pensions and Benefits, I had the opportunity, like the incredible opportunity to run 
you know, one of the largest health plans in the country, um, both public and private sector, we had about 820,000 members as of the time that I left. So we're a mega player. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a, a tremendous learning experience. It was humbling. It was eye-opening. Um, and, you know, I totally appreciate the perspective that you bring, you know, having come from the private, private sector and then joined public sector, um, you know, it was, I, I, I wouldn't say it was, you know, I was one of few people in that breed that, you know, comes at it with a lot of energy and throws everything they have, you know, also happened to throw a global pandemic um, into the mix while I was running a mega health plan. Um, but I think that uh, by and large, many public servants really do want to do the right thing for the taxpayers and for government entities. But some sure. of the systems that are in place just really make that difficult. And whether it's the, the really laborious process of public procurement or, you know, um, you know, just some of the rules that are put in place, you know, sort of rule, you know, making rules to the lowest common denominator amongst us really sort of puts your hands behind your back. Um, that being said, I will say that some of the challenges that public sector sort of saddled us with, right? So couldn't change plan design um, because we had labor contracts that couldn't be touched, couldn't engage in cost shifting because of the political dynamic. Like some of these things that the typical chief human resource officer benefits person would say, well, without these tools, I don't know what to do to control costs they forced us to get really creative. So um, more creative procurement methodology, we engaged in a reverse auction to basically put the vendors against each other and come to us with best price as opposed to sort of going in blind. Um, we also engaged in a RFP process and evaluation process based on unit cost um, guarantees as opposed to a discount analysis, which if you've been in the healthcare industry, you know, discounts are, the thing that most people use and a discount off a number I don't know is meaningless to me. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just, it, it did force us to get more creative, but I think that that led to some really innovative thinking and um, ultimately some really great results in the state having saved over the three years that we were there, um, uh, you know, well over $2 billion, B, that's with a B, billion dollars in healthcare costs and pharmaceutical costs. So specifically, I mean, well, you mentioned the, the, the process there, but how how do you go how do you go about tackling it? Because you have you have uh, stakeholders is the term we, we use in the government, right? Like yes. there's the people who provide it, the people who are, receive it, and the people who are in the middle. You know, and um, how do you manage all that to to get people to accept it? I mean, because I, I feel like a lot of is this not because it's legislative action, it's executive, and so you sort of can set the rules for how you want to work the process or. Is this something yeah. you have to go to legislature, ask for permission and to do certain processes right. or because those are obviously some of the constraints you have to deal with, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of constraints, you know, the public procurement process itself is just this monolith of, you know, had to go through nine agencies just to get the RFP out the door. <laughs> right. Um, so some of them took some legislative um, cooperation, for example, the reverse auction process in order to unmask prices and really get, you know, a competitive bidding process going um, where the bidders were trying to outbid the other, we had to get legislation because in a public procurement process, you can't unmask prices typically. Okay. Um, 
And then there were, and then, you know, on our TPA contract, for example, um, we worked with Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey. In that instance, it was a matter of really aggressive management of the contract and management to the terms of a really smart contract. We precluded cross-plan offsetting. We, um, you know, put strict terms on when, if claims were adjusted, when they needed to be returned to the self-funded plan, requiring segregation of accounts, payment on checks cleared basis only. So some of the things they didn't, again, it didn't require necessarily a consumer facing um, uh, engagement. It didn't require, it just, it was really some really hard work and prudent oversight of some of the systems we already had in place. Yeah. And it's, it's so easy to get caught lingo. So I was just like, what's TPA? Oh, TPA is third-party administrator, right? I mean, yes. and so that's the person who uh, takes your claims and processes them, right? That's Yeah. I mean, so we used, um, our model was to have a, a carrier that had, you know, obviously we're self-funded at 820,000 people. Um, our model was a carrier and TPA. So we would rent our net, you know, our network was provided by Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield, and they also were our claims adjudicator. Um, so we used, you know, as most large public entity use, it's one of the BUCAs, Blue Cross, United, Cigna, mm-hmm. Aetna. Um, and, uh, but we were self-funded. So all of the risk and all of, you know, the, the claims paid were coming out of the state's health benefits fund. And how do you, so one of the, when I talk to people about uh, when it comes to self-funding, one of one of the drawbacks of South Fund is you, you definitely take on a lot of risk or you take on some risk in, in the process, but it's hard to sometimes get the benefits because you rely on the contracts with, by your, with your third-party administrator or the network, right? And those contracts right. are oftentimes not very good, and, right? They're, yeah. uh, and I always give the example, I've given the example in my show before, I had a, um, a, a test uh, that was $250 cash if I wanted to get it or I could ask my insurance. So I said, ah, I'll just put it through insurance, whatever, because I had my deductible or something. And I pay, I think, the last 10% on the deductible. And I got a bill for uh, $5,000. Uh, so right. I, my 10% would be 500. I'm like, twice what I would have to have paid if my insurance accepted that. And so, and that's for the exact same test, right? So, I mean, that yeah. was like a 200% markup, which you're, most people I tell this to, they're amazed. You're just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you're used to that sort right. of markup. So how do you get around that problem? How do you save this the state money when you risk, you know, when you're basically on the backs of these kind of lousy contracts with the carriers? Yeah. I mean, we have to do a better job with our contracts. You know, I, one of the things I did have the benefit of with the way that our contracting process works in the state, the state, you know, we drafted and crafted the contract and it doesn't change, right? It's not like we find a bidder and they bid on the business, they give us a price and then we negotiate terms. The terms of the contract are set by us. So like I said, no cross-plan offsetting. Um, what does that we, mean? Uh, so in the, in the TPA carrier world, often what, what happens, and you're a doctor, you've probably, you know, you're a physician, you've seen this, you get paid by the insurance company $1,000 for a, a claim, right? Sure. And then six months later or two months later, um, they decide that you didn't really earn or, you know, oh, we're going to yeah. downward adjust, right? And I'm going to take half of it back. And now you only have $500 for that exact same claim, Right. Well, in order to, they're adjusting that claim, um, but they're not going to ask you to like, you know, issue a check. They're just going to offset on a future yeah. payment, right? Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But, but what a cross-plan offset does 
is it essentially it's taking, let's say that first claim was my member and I'm a self-funded health plan. That's my money, right? That's not Blue Cross Blue Shield's money. That's my money. They're just the facilitator. Well, if they take that money back, that $500 back from you and they make another plan whole before me, that's, that's a breach of my fiduciary obligation because that's my money. And so cross plan offsetting is this process that a few circuits have deemed it um, uh, uh, illegal because you're taking an ERISA funded, you know, self-funded plan money and you're using it to make your fully insured business whole, which is typically what happens, or you're using my money to make some other employer whole, you know, based on a claim with you, the doctor. So precluding cross-plane offsetting. Um, another area that we um, improved this last round was um, lesser of logic. So lesser of the build charge or the negotiated amount. So we actually saw in one claim uh, in the, you know, outside in a uh, hospital in New York, the, the charged amount, like the charged amount from the hospital was $675,000, okay? The plan paid amount was $2 million. So the, the bill, the itemized bill was $1.3 million less than what the plan paid, right? And you're kind of, it's like your head scratching, like, what am I paying these carriers for? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so um, I think we're, you know, you can be on this self-funded journey and we were along that trajectory of, okay, cleaning up the contract, but eventually with hospital transparency and knowing what the cash price is versus what your carriers negotiated on your behalf. I mean, eventually you get to the point where you're like, what am I paying you for? Why do I, why can't, why shouldn't I just pay cash prices? Like, or why shouldn't I, you know, pay cash prices with some other funding or just do direct contracting. If the middleman is not bringing value, why am I working with a middleman? I mean, that's, that's kind of where I see this going. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Your story reminds me of like if if you were uh, running the the federal government, I didn't I'd be sure that that 1.3 million dollars is going to fund some like uh, black ops, you know, prison <laughs> somewhere, right? That, that's a, you, that's why you pay $20,000 for a hammer or something, right? The Pentagon because you you right. money fund somewhere else, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, give give me an idea of the magnitude of the savings. So you mentioned a couple billion dollars, which, you know, 20, 30 years ago that would have really impressed someone, but maybe now you we throw, a, throw around billions and trillions without even thinking much about right. it. Right. New Jersey is obviously a very big state as far as population. So, what kind right. of savings is that for the pension benefits, and what does that mean for the state government and the, their budget? Yeah, that's it's a great, it's a really important point, right? Because as we approach now, what nineteen point seven percent of GDP as a country in terms of what we're spending on healthcare, it's kind of this huge number. How do you contextualize that, right? Like, well, we spend less than 4% on education and we spend less than 1% on climate change infrastructure. Like right. for the state of New Jersey, um, you know, we had, uh, I believe in the, I'm trying to, you know, the budget goes up every year, um, but around the time, I believe it was one year, it was 2020, where there was, you know, well over 500 million in savings um, we had a budget of close to $40 billion, right? Mm-hmm. So if, you know, if you're talking about what that can do for a state budget, for a state like New Jersey, you can actually make a full pension payment yeah. and put That's down- That's 1.5%, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's substantial 
you know, and over those three years, it's, it's also monies that you could then, for example, during, uh, uh, actually February of 22, because of the rates that we set last summer in 21, um, school districts across New Jersey that are participating in the school health benefits plan are getting a premium holiday. I mean, that's direct tax relief for local governments who, you know, for, for them, like health and benefits costs of their educators are one of the highest line items in their, you know, local budgets. So what does that mean for your municipality? It might mean better roads or, you know, better programming for what, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's recognizing that, you know, we're spending a ton of money and we're not getting our, our money's worth. We're just not. Um, and because we're not demanding it. I think. Um, and so we need to do a better job as employers, um, employers and true payers of healthcare collaborating with the providers. And, and I think that, again, going along that trajectory, like if there's no value proposition for the middleman, then that's got to change. Either they have to evolve and deliver value or get out of the way because we're losing our edges from a global competitive perspective um, our health outcomes aren't improving. Our health infrastructure is, you know, crumbling, right. you know, one in five healthcare workers is quitting. Um, we're at a crisis point, but we've said that before. And unless we do something about it, it's just going to get worse. Of course, the, those uh, middlemen have really good lobbyists. So that's one reason they stick around too, right? <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have the best lobbyists, right? I mean, there's they're the biggest lobbying. I mean, the PBMs are the biggest lobbying uh, entities in the federal government. I'm sure they are the same at the state level as well. Yeah, I mean, they're all, you know, the hospital associations, the carriers associations, they all have very, very, you know, I find um, probably because I'm a lawyer and I'm uh, sort of uh, bookish in some ways, but I find reading the um, articles or the briefing on the No Surprises Act just to be fascinating because you have these groups fighting each other over the No Surprises Act. And essentially you have the carrier saying, we have no negotiating power. Exhibit A is the craziness of hospital prices, right? And out of network prices. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, you're essentially conceding in a legal document that you've signed an affidavit that you have no value proposition because you can't control prices. <laughs> yeah. You just said that out loud, you know? Um, it's kind of crazy. All right. So big value with the with the state government. Uh, you also mentioned the premium holiday. And for those who aren't, that just means you don't pay a premium that, that month or. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like so our local, it's like a, our it's like a tax local employers, they would typically like, if you had 500 members, you would pay whatever the premium is 20,000 a year times 500. And then you send that into the state as your premium, you get a month off. Yeah. Which you can use to put, like you said, any sort of other programs. Uh, all right. So what made you, what brought you into the state government? How did you get to that position? Uh, was this a political position? Is this something you thought, oh, you know what I really want to do? I want to tackle healthcare and benefits and pensions yeah. in my state. That sounds like fun. <laughs> like everything in my career, I sort of I fell into it fortuitously, let's say, you know, I graduated from law school in 2008 at the peak of the financial crisis when all of my colleagues um, that I graduated with were getting furloughed and, you know, jobs taken away. And that's why I found myself in bankruptcy, right? So <laughs> I was supposed to be a construction real estate attorney and, yeah. and that didn't pan out. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I went to the attorney general's office, I was one of the few um, hires that 
you know, had experience. So I got to work on complex financial transactions because I, you know, had a few years under my belt and, you know, just, you know, being smart and a hard worker, um, got noticed by the governor's office and some folks that I worked with on a really big, interesting project. We actually deposited the New Jersey state lottery into the pension system. Um, uh, we could have a whole nother session on that, but, um, so I got some FaceTime with some folks in the governor's office that needed somebody to step in and, um, work with the treasurer's office and department of banking and insurance. Um, and that's where I got my FaceTime with the treasurer's office. And when I saw the, you know, just the immense opportunity and the misses and the, uh, the, the opportunity to impact within health benefits, I thought this, this is something I could really sink my teeth into. Um, you know, it's meaningful work. It's, it's work that I, I just, I tremendously enjoyed and I just couldn't get enough. Um, and I would, you know, listen to podcasts around the, around the clock, just learning about all of the different facets. But I also think that, you know, my different lens coming at it, not from the carrier industry, not from the provider side, but just as somebody who thought like, what are we paying for? <laughs> like I asked really basic yeah. questions. Um, but you know, to some of our consultants and sort of legacy players, they were, they were revolutionary questions because nobody had asked them before, despite how very straightforward and simple they were. Yeah. I, I've always found those discussions interesting too. The questions we asked, I was in hospital leadership for quite a while, or at least attending the meetings. I was not in the leadership, but just the leadership with my group. And they would ask questions like, well, how do we know how much something costs? And you think to yourself, what? this is a business. How do you not know how much right. it costs to do something? But their model was not you know, designed to actually take that into account. And so they had no way of even accounting and figuring that out. And it's, it, right. it's stunning, but I'm sure you ran into that times a thousand, right? Cause everything is like, well, it's just the way we've done it. And it sort of evolves. It moves a certain way. And, and people who are in the industry, well, that's just the way we do things. And until you go back and go to first principles and sort of ask your question, right. <laughs> like as a customer, why are we doing it this way? Uh, and people are like, oh, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that for a long time. Just right. busy with managing people or whatever, right? Or, or you know, there's a certain, I've definitely experienced the defensiveness, you know, when you question why something's been done a certain way and they've been doing it that way for 20 years, um, you know, you're in, in essence questioning their judgment or lack right. thereof. And, and so there is a defensiveness. So you have to hedge that with, you know, there have been changes in the market and there's reasons why things are changing. And it's not a, it's not a judgment call on you. It's just, it's time to evolve. Um, and I think, you know, if we look at where we've come from a spend perspective, there's no more, you know, there shouldn't be any need for any bigger sort of catalyst than to say like, we have to wake up and do things differently because what we've been doing is not working. Yeah. If we were getting better health outcomes, if we were getting, you know, if, if but we're not, right? We're doing more of the same. We're, we're not getting healthier and um, we're spending more. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, when you look at budgets for, for not only just the governments, but you look at even corporations, healthcare is a gigantic you know, item where if you can save five, 10% of that budget, it's, it's significant where you can really um, put the money yeah. for salaries or whatever, providing better but, benefits, maybe you spend the same amount, but get better benefits out of the deal or, you know, whatever. But try, be. I mean, <laughs> try convincing a CFO that they have a role in healthcare decisions, you know, from a benefits perspective. And they're like, no, 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 that's HR. I don't do that. <laughs> Despite the fact, like, you know, I, I had this argument with my husband, he's a chief commercial officer for a scrap metal company. And I say, you know, what's your health benefits, man? You have 3000 employees and 
I was like, I don't know. I'm like, but, but you know what non-ferrous inventory you have in Minnesota, right? But you don't know anything about this huge spend. Like it's a problem. Um, but there's this reluctance I feel on the part of, you know, the C-suite to say like, I get a little, they get really uncomfortable when it comes to talking about being more active in that, that benefits role. And I heard a great analogy. I won't take credit for it. It was a woman from Northwestern Mutual who runs their benefits. And she said, this is how she sort of had to explain the value proposition of becoming a more engaged employer to her C-suite. Let's say you're, you have a, a cafeteria in your, um, you know, at your headquarters, corporate headquarters, and you have a, a vending machine. It's a water vending machine. It's all water, you know, 20 different types of water, right? Um, I happen to know because I have data and the frog data and all the, all the rest that some of the waters can be pretty dangerous and not great for you. Some of the waters are like fantastic, even good for you. And some, you know, and all of the waters cost completely different amounts. And I know all of this, I know what they cost. I know how dangerous they are or not, but I'm not going to tell you because it's your money. You do what you want. Just go, you know, just go for it. Luck of the draw. And that's kind of what we do. And nobody would do that, right? Nobody would do that in healthcare. Um, yet we're spending way more money. And that's what we're essentially asking our employees to do is just sort of leaving them to the wolves. There's there's so much about healthcare. It, because it's so expensive and it, the price goes up you know, every year, whatever, people just say, well, that's just the way it is. And there's, and I think that sometimes they're not, they don't, they don't question, they're sort of not curious enough to try and tackle those problems. It's because it's a difficult, complicated problem. And everyone likes whatever the plan was because they're worried about, you know, it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't. Um, you know, one of the one of the examples is often uses the the Montana Miracle. What's uh, what's her name? Marilyn Bartlett. Uh, Marilyn. So, right. Yeah. So she saved thirty million dollars. Much much smaller state, right? That's a ton, that's a ton for thirty seven thousand employees. So right. That's yeah. A, <laughs> that's a ton for that small state. Uh, yeah. Just with prescri- I mean, just with um, prescription medicines, basically, right? It's just changing that or changing pegging prices to Medicare, I guess, and yeah, with hospitals. And she was very successful, you know, it's a, it's a model. And so a lot of people thought, thought, Hey, let's do this in our state because we can do the same thing. Well, it hasn't worked out that way in lots of States. And so go over why that, why hasn't worked? Is it, they just need a Maryland Bartlett? Is it the other forces are different in the States? It's not Montana. I mean, what exactly she was successful in Montana still reaping the benefits from what she did, but lots of other States have tried to replicate and have failed. Right. Um, so I know Marilyn well, um, you know, it's a small community of health plan administrators for states. So, <laughs> <It is. laughs> yeah. Um, and I think a couple of reasons for her success. Number one, she is, she is, you know, mighty in terms of how she approached the problem. And she was really um, at the cutting edge of using data and CMS filings and hospital, hospital financials to really challenge the narrative that hospitals need to charge the rates that they do in order to break even or make profit. So, you know, when they retorted with, yeah, but Medicaid and charity care and all of the things, she was able to say, yeah, but in your financial, um, it shows that you have a 2% Medicaid case mix, you have a 3% charity care mix and, you know, whatever. <laughs> and you have a profit margin of 20%. So let's cut, let's, let's split the baby and you can have a profit margin of 10%, you know? So she came at it, to, came at it with data and then there was also the size, right? 37,000 members versus, you know, closer to a million. And I think that 
The, the case study and how it didn't work was North Carolina. They had close to, you know, I think they were the, the next stop that attempted to, to go to full reference-based pricing in their state health plan. But, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to be D. Jones on the other side of those hospitals, right? And Treasurer Falwell. Um, the hospitals, lo- I mean, they pulled out all the stops with lobbying and, and quite frankly, the carrier in that instance, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, sort of sat back and said, I'm not, not gonna help out either way. Um, you know, again, once you go and you set a price directly with a hospital, what's the value proposition of the network? Yeah, right. Right? Um, and, you know, I think it's certainly when I joined the treasurer's office, everybody sent me the Forbes article and the, this article, the, that article, you need to do what Marilyn Bartlett did, you know? Um, but then I think I also know how strong the hospital lobby is in New Jersey and the mere mention of the word direct contracting in a budget meeting once literally almost brought down the roof in you know, when the hospitals heard that like, you know, I don't think it was even in the context of something that could actually happen, but there was a immediate sort of, you know, firestorm of like direct contract. You're not thinking about this, right? Like this isn't happening. Um, yeah, it's, it, it would be a, a huge challenge. Do I think reference-based pricing is a promising solution for some? Is it a, is it the panacea? Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah it's uh, and I'm sure for the hospitals, right. In some ways, she caught them off guard, right? She was, they, she, yeah. right now they, they read those same articles too. They're like, well, okay, we're not gonna let that happen here. Yeah, <laughs> no, Montana, exactly. Right. So they are as uh, you know, once you've been fooled once, you're not gonna get fooled a second time. Right. So, yes. Uh, so would you, you're not involved in the, the state government at this point, right? With the Correct. pension no, benefits. I'm a, I'm a free agent. You're free. free agent. <laughs> no. What, what would you recommend to people to get involved? I mean, someone who said, let's say someone is the same energy that they want to, they want to tackle these sorts of things in their state or uh, how would you recommend they go about it? I mean, is it the, what, is it just looking at the, when they get there, looking at the budget and say, okay, this is a spot maybe for them, it won't be medications. It'll be hospitals. Or, I mean, do you have to kind of look at and see the specific situation within your state where the savings can come? No, I mean, I think you're going to, you could say, yeah, each state's going to be a little different, but by and large, it's going to be uh, the same story everywhere, right? Hospital prices are the number one cause of, of hospital, the, the tremendous rise in uh, healthcare costs, specialty pharmacy, huge cost driver. Um, and, and I think those are, those are probably the two big nuts to crack. How do you get involved? You know, I think that's dependent upon the political environment in your state and who's actually running the show. I happen to take the opinion or, you know, I'm of the belief that our, the solution to these problems is not going to come from Washington. It is not going to come from Albany, Trenton, whatever your state capital is. Yeah. Um, absolutely. It's not. I've been there. I know how the lobbyists work. I know the political weight that can be thrown around by the legacy institutions that stand to lose from change. Um, this, the, the change the, that I, I think change will come from the self-funded employers who finally stand up and say like, I can't, if I'm Starbucks, I can't spend more on healthcare than coffee beans, right? Um, <laughs> it's just no longer tenable. And we will, you know, we will lose our place 
in sort of in the global competitive marketplace if we don't get a hold of this we will and and that has to be i think that's it's becoming more and more apparent um what do i think is actually going to like blow it up for there to be like real change and a real correction point that the market needs i think there's going to be some lawsuits um i think some of the bad acting is going to be called out um, and I think that some of the more recent uh, rules and regulations, not on ho- hospital transparency, though I think it's important, but more on the fiduciary ERISA side and some of the duties that are now being shifted and made very clear that you as an employer and a fiduciary of funds for a health plan have to do these things, right? If there's a legal obligation, um, a creative group of attorneys are going to get together and figure out how to use the legal system to enforce that and, you know, reap fees. Right. We've talked on about drug primary care a number of times in this show. Mm-hmm. And I know there have been people who've looked at DPC as a way of saving money. I think Indiana experimented a little bit in this. Um, how, how do you see it as a role in the state government with their yeah. benefits? Is that, is that something that can really be utilized? Because I mean, part of me thinks, uh, you know, you start saying, okay, we're going to pay $75 per member per month to, whoever wants to get, or let's say a hundred dollars, then all the DPC docs are going to start charging a hundred bucks. Right. I mean, it's like you can, you right. can or they charge 150 and now how, how do you get it so that it actually works? And then do you actually see any real savings and, you know, improve health outcomes with, by using, utilizing that? So we did have a direct primary care pilot program. And for us, a pilot was probably what most would see as like a really big program. We had over, <laughs> t- we had 12 locations with three different vendors. Um, but you know, I'm not going to say we, it was very much a, it was a pilot. It was a learning opportunity. We changed the way that we contracted with the providers about midway, about two years in to put more funds at risk. Um, I'm a big believer in direct primary care. I'm a big believer in advanced, like tech enabled advanced primary care within the DPC model. Um, I think that, you know, uh, if you know, you mentioned like the capitated rate, you know, some, not all DPC is created equally, right? So if I have a sure. $50 per member per month and you can come whenever you want and that's great. Or if I'm paying like, let's say I'm paying $250 per member per month, but I'm sending all of my polychronic, you know, conditions and I'm really taking care of those members. Like, you know, you could do the math, you know how much an ER visit costs an avoidable yeah. ER visit. It's so worth the investment, right? Um, and keeping folks in that care setting, as opposed to in the hospital care setting is so important. And, and the way that you incentivize utilization on the member side, and then incentivize the right care on the DPC side through shared savings models, total cost of care, you know, with risk adjustments, obviously, um, the biggest hurdle we faced was the information embargo from the carriers, right? They don't have a vested interest in this being a successful right, right. model, right? Because they're over there on the other side of the table with the hospitals, um, you know, happy and fat. They don't they don't want tech-enabled advanced primary care to pe- keep people out of their network facilities that they've invested so much in. And they'll do everything they can to sit on the data that will truly unlock the value of that solution. It's one of the reasons where I'm sitting where I am is because I feel so strongly in the value and importance of owning your data as a fiduciary um, to your plan, whether that's fully insured or or, um, self-insured. Yeah. 
Well, I, and I agree with you, your sentiment that it's not legislation. It's not going to be a top-down solution to a lot of our healthcare problems. It's going to be, it's going to be the individuals and it's going to be the small businesses and the medium and larger size businesses that recognize that they can force value in the system, right? That, that once there's now, I think there are definitely some solutions and people are actively working to contract. And I think it's direct contracting aspect of it. However, you might, whether it has direct right. primary care or other uh, parts into it. How would you, well, you're at 4C Health Solutions, which I'm sure part of it is going to business and saying, hey, this is how you should do things. What's your pitch to them? Like, how do you convince them that direct contracting is what they should be doing? And do you say, well, there are other companies that are doing this now and they're saving, you know, billions of dollars because they're really big corporations. Um, how do you convince them that this is the right way to go? This is the path forward to unlock some real big savings for them. Yeah. I mean, I think what we do at 4C Health Solutions is, is, um, more agnostic from a future state. Like if, if an employer is looking to move to direct contracting um, or if they're looking to move to a, a DPC model, um, really any, you know, I would say any, anything other than just being straight status quo is something that we help make um, not just easier, but really unlock the value on because we, when I, I like to help folks visualize what they see us as, we don't necessarily reside up in the sort of the ecosystem and the periphery of digital point solutions and digital health solutions. Um, we really sit, I think, you know, more as a utility underneath a health plan. And we help data move from a carrier like a Buka or an independent TPA um, or the hospital directly, you know, to the to the client and then to the point solutions that they have selected. And whether that's a direct primary care vendor or, you know, a, an included health or whatever, whatever the a quantum or accolade, whatever it is, um, uh, it's, it's taking your data and making it work for you as opposed to working for the big carriers or working for, I mean, I've seen the monetization and, and most employers aren't aware that this is happening, but their data that's running through their carriers is being sold regularly and, and used and being monetized um, and creating, you know, these products and, you know, but you're not getting the benefit of it to drive the right health solutions for your members. Um, and then, you know, if you are sticking with that Buka model and the traditional TPA model, you need to know where your money is going and what's being paid. Like going back to that readjustment that we talked about in the beginning of that $1,000 claim being adjusted down to 500. In today's world, you don't know that that $500 ever made it back into your account. There is no right. means by which you can actually account for that from a financial perspective. We do that. You know, we're very much, you know, it gets a little wonky, but we enable fiduciaries to actually have a full, you know, full um, view of their healthcare financial transactions and claims, um, which I think is really important. And I wasn't able, ever able to find that solution when I was at the state. You know, when you're spending $25, $30 million a day in a claim wire going out the door and you're telling, you know, I was told like essentially there was no way to tie back the claim file to the financial transactions. You know, not that I'm an accountant, but Marilyn Bartlett would say like, you know, you have to tie those things out, money in, money out, debits and credits, right? And it seems very simple, but we don't do that in healthcare, which is crazy. Yeah, I guess, can you explain, you mentioned the selling data. And I've heard a number of people talk about this with the, the data. One thing with credentialing with, uh, with physicians, one of the, one of the arguments is said, well, you know, these large credentialing organizations, American board of medical specialists, you know, they have 
mine's ABA, there's a mm-hmm. ABP, all the different ones that they actually sell your data. That's one of the ways they make their money. And one of the, and that the hospitals pay for this on some, oh, way. Yeah. I, I guess explain it to me. Cause I don't understand uh, what they're selling and why anyone <laughs> would buy it. Like who cares if I'm credit? I mean, why would my hospital care? They care if I'm credentialed like once every two years, but outside <laughs> Said it, I don't see what value they get for it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of crazy how how robust this marketplace of any data is, right? And so, for example, the health plan data for New Jersey, you know, it's all let's say de-identified, um, so there's no PHI, but they take these data sets and they'll bundle them up and sell it to you know uh, you know some startup or or even um, a for-profit venture capital firm that just so happens to be owned by the carrier so that they can monetize it for profit or the hospital that happens to, you know, when they'll create, you know, some sort of EHR technology or a program that I've heard, I've heard that, and I I don't have anything to prove this, but I won't name names, um, but I've heard from a programmer that works in this institution that they've actually taken data and then they've gamified care pathways so that the physician is more apt to go down a care pathway that is the most profitable for the um, hospital system. You mean like setting up an algorithm within the, or that making it convenient in like ER, MR? Yeah, like they've, go, they've hey, used, now, oh, hey, did you order antibiotics or did you order this test? And then it can be Right, like the care pathway that they're walked down and, you know, gamify whether that's behavioral psychology or the way that the, right. the app and the thing they're interacting with takes them down that path. It is purpose, purposely designed so as to take them down a path that is most profitable for the hospital, not necessarily what is most appropriate for the patient. That's wild. That and I, but I nothing would, about that surprises me. Knowing, well, I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't me either, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, just I just I just can't understand how that works. But that doesn't mean right. people don't have aren't smarter than me with the, can manipulate data that way. So that's the data that people are buying. Well, interesting. I guess I would. Well, that's part. Of, I mean, you know, I can think of a number. You know, when you sell, when you're talking about the credentialing, you know. Who knows what they're doing with it, but they'll take it and they'll bump it up against 10 other data sets and figure out some sort of product, package it up and sell it. I mean, it's one of the ways that, um, you know, the nonprofit hospital systems who I'm sure you sort of see the nonprofit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, what you, you know, what they, what they'll do, right. Is they'll use their um, nonprofit business and their physicians and their, you know, their staff within the nonprofit system, and they will incentivize creation of apps or, you know, applications or technology or whatever. Um, And then they sell them for really, really great price to their for-profit venture arms who then work to monetize them and sell them. Hmm. And I mean, it's, you know, the world of hospital finance and healthcare finance is just fascinating and but you know once you start to understand these things and actually like peel back the layers i mean a a great exercise and if you do this if you don't do this you should and your your listeners should listen into an earnings call on one of these for-profit um like carriers like you will actually hear where you know you it looks very different from the mission statement of you know caring for our communities and our people let's just say that (laughs) yeah i imagine so 
Well, I want to be respectful of your time. So Chris Deacon of 4C Health Solutions, uh, any place people want to follow your writing or your social media that want to? Yeah, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn um, and try to, to drop content there fairly frequently, try to make it meaningful. So I'm not like a, a religious everyday poster just for the sake of posting. Um, but also you can find my, uh, work email address, um, on LinkedIn or at cdeacon at 4chealthsolutions.com. Well, thanks so much. Hopefully you've given some hope for those who want to reform government and also, uh, corporate entities that want to look to save money in healthcare. Thanks so much for being on the paradox. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.